<laughs> if someone had enough money to live well, sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Thank you. Short and sweet and very forcefully read, quite appropriately. So thank you for that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it was read with the right gusto and kind of passion and heart behind this, uh, this scripture, quite appropriately. Um, it is good to be back. It's really good to be back. Um, we had a good trip. Good trip. Uh, do I need to... Hang on, I think I need to unmute. <laughs> I see Leon is waving, jumping up and down. Okay, I see. <laughs> is that better? Am I, okay, I'm live. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things go through heart and mind. One thing I realize, it's, 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 it's better to cry there than here. <laughs> it's better to cry close by than far away um, and, and, and get it all out. It's very therapeutic and to see family and be with people you love. And um, so thank you for, uh, for everybody that uh, supported us in, in, in our difficult time as well. Stefan, can I say that? You say thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Bill. It was uh, it was interesting because it was there was load shedding, which is a fancy word for black rolling blackouts, no power. So to try and get a parcel delivered, <laughs> they got it in the end. Okay, great. Thank you. So now we walk into a place and our systems are down. We can't do this. We can't do that. Anyway, we got there in the end. Um. Right. So have you ever thought about? Maybe as a child or when you were young or even now, um, I want to be like someone that you have a role model and you admire, uh, a hero to, to imitate. Um, it could be in sports, it could be in your career, it could be in life. Um, someone that you think like, wow, that, that's, that person is quite amazing. You know, we, we played some, uh, um, after a week, in Pretoria and taking care of the funeral and practicalities of things. We, we, we took a week away with the kids at the holiday resort and, and had a bit of a family holiday as well, using the opportunity with everybody together. And we went to play tennis with my kids and, and wife a few times. And, and it's amazing how in my mind I picture, you know, I picture Roger Federer and it's like in, <laughs> and you can see the ball over there and I can see myself running for it and I know, wow, you know, if I just get too long strides, I can swing it. And in my mind's eye, I can see the swing and I can see it going over the net and landing in the corner. And then, I mean, by the time I get to the ball, it's to the back fence already. <laughs> Have you ever had that? It's like you, you look up to someone, you, you have uh, someone that you imitate or a hero, a sports hero. You know, men on the couch watching football, you know, someone scores a goal, uh, Messi scores a goal, and they go like, yeah, I can do that. You know, <laughs> um, you know I could have done that, but I chose my professional career, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know such a fickle thing, a sports career. It's like, we, we, we sometimes imagine or, or even look up to, to people and are inspired by them and think like, wow, yeah, I can do that. But when we really, when it gets down to it, it's easier said than done. And the last time I spoke, uh, we talked about the, the one command, the command we had from the beginning to love one another. And we talked about aiming for the bullseye, 
that that's the middle of the target, that, that we aim for that love one another. And uh, I shared a bit about the Jim Steinman meatloaf song, I would do anything for love. Um, and uh, now that we know the bullseye is to love, that sounds fantastic, intellectually. But what does it mean in practice? And John immediately carries on after explaining this whole thing of, you know, this is what it's all about love and, you know, love one another and that's all that really matters and all these other commands, you know. And then he follows that on with this passage that says, okay, so you get the picture. Now, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? <coughs> Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Very powerful message. Now, this sentence here is a, it's actually a great example of what I call biblical sloganism. Um, Christians sometimes, you know, we like our slogans, these one-liners that we hang our hat on. And it's like, it sounds great, but it also means that we so easily take something out of context. Now, if we just take that last bit, let us not love with words or speech. If we only take that bit of sentence, you can take it out of context completely and say, you know what? Um, don't tell me you love me. Just show it to me. Now, that's not actually what he's saying. It is, he's not saying don't say you love, don't talk about love at all. It's not like it's forbidden. Let us not love with words or speech. It's not saying don't do that. It is, um, it is just the illustration of emphasizing through its emphasis through antithesis. It's like em emphasizing it through an opposing idea, saying that is so much better than that. It's not saying don't say you love people. In general, and I hope you agree, I would say it's a good idea to express our love in words too. It completes the picture. In fact, <coughs> um, I found it's actually really helpful and it's sometimes we, something we sometimes long for. Uh, one of the things I shared at my, my dad's uh, memorial service, and um, people who knew my dad, he was a man of very few words, very, very few words. Uh, in a, I know I say a lot when I'm up here, but, but in social situations, I'm a bit like him. I would happily sit in a, where a group of people are together chatting away, I would happily sit in the corner with my mouth shut and, and be okay with it <laughs> and not say a thing. My dad would easily sit for an hour and not say a word um, and just listen to people talking. He was a, he was a man of very few words. He, he never really expressed his emotions. Um, but the interesting thing which so many people remarked and we shared at his uh, memorial service is that how they saw his love through his behavior and through his deeds. And I shared and I experienced that myself as well. For, for many, many, many years, I knew that my dad loved me. I had no doubt about it because of his deeds, because of the way he behaved and the things he did. And even, but even though I knew it, I always longed for Oh, if I only could hear it as well. Now, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you, you know, couples, maybe, you know, when you're married, you know your wife loves you, or you know your husband loves you, and maybe sometimes it's more in the one direction than the other one, that uh, it's like, in, I know he loves me, but, you know, it'll be nice to hear it sometimes. <laughs> 
Like, the, <laughs> why are you sitting over there? Like, okay, like, okay, anyway. Let me, <laughs> let, me, let me not stir to my chair. It's like, <laughs> so, yeah, no, you know, Danny, you're the brownie points man. So, you know, you know where to score brownie points here. You know, it's like in a, in a relationship. You know? But, um, and, and, and whether it's in, in married couples, or whether it's with parents and their children, or whether it is with ourselves here in our relationships. Uh, yes, John says it's about the actions and truths, but yes, it's also about words and in speech. And it's good for us to sometimes tell each other, I love you. And with my dad, I was the same. I hardly ever, in fact, I, I don't think I told anybody ever I loved them except my girlfriend, which then became my wife, Liesl. And <laughs> in fact, she was, the, yeah, she was the only person I expressed that love towards. And then later, when I was 27, um, let me just calculate, 27? So, yeah, 27. When I was 27, I became a Christian. And only when I became a Christian, I started learning about these things. And I, le I started learning to express my own emotions. And for the first time ever, I told one of my blood physical brothers that I loved him. And I was like, oop. I had to swallow a few times and like <clears throat> kind of coughed out and <laughs> felt very awkward about it. And, and I was like, oh, what are you going to say? I mean, I've never in his life or my life told him that or heard it from any one of them. And then over, over a few years, uh, we were in, in the UK and then in Namibia and then in the Netherlands. Over, the, over a few years, every time I would phone my dad, I would tell him I love him. And then suddenly one day, he said, oh, I love you too. And I thought like, oh, <laughs> I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure whether I should cry or celebrate or jump up and down. And like, but to hear it, to something that I knew all the time anyway, meant so much. It's important for us to say it, to express it. Yes, it, he says, don't love with words or speech. He's not saying don't say it. Yes, we do need to say it. And if you haven't said it to someone recently, someone that you do care and love about, and you think like, well, they know I, they know I love them. Make a point to, to actually say it, express it. And if you, if you can't open your mouth, you think, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to choke or cry or something, write a note, send a card or something, or <laughs> WhatsApp with a little heart, <laughs> whatever. If you can get to the point where you can actually say it, that would be great. Um, and the same with us here in the congregation as, as spiritual brothers and sisters. Um, yeah, I think... Um, it's good for, to remind ourselves to express our love for each other with words. But that is not what John is talking about here. We do need to do that. He said, the antithesis of this is, you know, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. With actions and in truth. Now, this idea of not love with words or speech, but actions and in truth, it's not a particularly religious or novel idea that the Bible invented. Um, we have, in our everyday language, we have expressions like that. I mean, what, what expressions do we commonly hear that expresses a similar idea that people talk about in everyday language? What do you think? Does it sound, that sounds familiar? <laughs> actions speak louder than words. The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> yeah, anything else? 
genuine article. The genuine article, yeah. <laughs> Things like, oh, can you walk the talk? Don't just talk the talk, but walk the talk. Uh, we say you need, you need to lead by example, not just by words. We say things like, practice what you preach. Put your money where your mouth is. Uh, an empty vessel makes a lot of noise. Where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. Uh, we say things like, talk is cheap. Uh, oh, he's all talk, but no action. Easy to say, hard to do. This is a very common thing in, in, in life, actually. It's easy to talk, it's easy to say something, but to actually live up to it and express it, that's a lot more challenging. And if you like sermon titles, that's what I want to talk about today. It is the message of John here is to love the love that we proclaim. Uh, Solomon in, in Proverbs says, many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. Many claim to have unfailing love. As hard as it is, was for me to sincerely say, I love you, it's also very easy to say, oh, I love you. Hey, Leon, I love you. Joe, I love you. But to say it with meaning and to really, Solomon said, yeah, it's, words are cheap, they're easy to express, but can we actually live up to it? And that's the, the, the calling of John here. He says, Let's just not love in word and in speech. Yes, it's good to say I love you, but let us love with actions and in truth. If you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, let's turn it to James chapter 1. John was not the only one who had a lot to say about this. <clears throat> We're just going to pick two verses from James 1 and then a fairly lengthy passage in James 2. So in James 1, verse 22, James talks about actually reading the Bible or the word, the message we hear in a, in a sermon or a, in preaching. And in James 1, verse 22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. <clears throat> and then a bit further on in verse 27, he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James expresses the same thing here. It's like, you know, this is not just about listening and saying things. In fact, he said, if you want to see pure religion, it is not about some fancy messages or theology. It is, like Danny says, that's where the rubber hits the road. It is, you know, are you actually looking after the orphans and the widows? Are we, are we looking after the poor and the needy in society? Are we standing up for the rights of the oppressed? The practicalities of love of, and of life. So he carries on in, the, in chapter 2, if we skip forward to chapter 2, verse 14. And then he expands on this whole idea. Now, he connects it not to love, but to faith. But it's a, the principle is exactly the same. In James 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, 
but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? <coughs> and again, he's not saying, don't say, you know, go in peace, don't say keep warm, don't say be well fed. Those words also are helpful and meaningful and and uh, I and Liesl, we want to thank everybody for the love and the comfort we experienced in, in our difficult time. <coughs> some of it was practical and, and very helpful, and some of it was just words, but those words were meaningful and helpful. But James says, it's fine, you know, say those things, but in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And I think we can say the same thing about love. If love is not accompanied by action, is it even really love? It is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, oh, you have faith, I have deeds. And now comes the political, theological discussion. It's like, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. let's just uh, get the doctrine clear here. You know, it's like, in, don't say my faith is dead. You know, maybe you've got the faith, I've got the deeds, and together, you know, we make up the collective body who all work together, and it all works out in the end. You know, someone may say that. In verse 19, he says, well, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, this passage um, in, in James has led and is still leading sometimes to endless theological debates about this question. It's like, oh, hang on, this is rather harsh, isn't it? You know, to say that, is there something that's a faith that does not save you? And, and okay, so if you say faith is not alone, cannot save you, then deeds is part of it, then how many deeds? How much do you need to do? And it all becomes quite confusing. And, uh, you know, Calvinism and Luther had, and various other theologians of the time had, had long theological debates about this. And I think about myself, I'm rather intellectual by nature. I'm, you know, give me a good debate about overdoing something any day. You know, I'll happily sit and talk and discuss things and have an opinion rather than actually go and do something. Uh, but I realized, looking at this and, and just objectively reading it, that after uh, growing up and sitting and being a, you know, warming the church benches thinking that, you know, that's a sufficient expression of my faith to just show up on Sunday and, and sit there and be there. Reading this passage, realized that, you know, this is not about the debate about, okay, what exactly is the theology here? That, that's not the point. The point is, are we doing something about it? Are we doing something about our faith and our love? It cannot be an empty faith and an empty love. Whatever, wherever that boundary is, I don't know. And I don't even think it's worth having a, a debate about it. About, okay, how many deeds is it that's enough to kind of balance it out so it's not faith alone? That's not the point. 
That's pharisaical thinking. In fact, the Pharisees tried to entrap Jesus on exactly this point. And in John 7, he responded, he told them, he says, well, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And that's the bottom line. It's not about having a debate of, oh, how many deeds are enough to show my love? How many deeds are enough to show or to prove my faith? It is about, if I have faith and I have love, then it will lead to action. It will show up practically in my life. And then we don't need to have the debate. I think one of the challenges we sometimes have, and I sometimes face, is, is guilt. It's like, am I doing enough? Are my deeds really sufficient to, to, to show God's love to the world? Are my deeds really of the quality or the quantity to, to prove my faith? And again, that's pharisaical thinking. That's not the point. But the point is to do something. Has anybody seen the movie Up it's from 2009? It's a Pixar movie. Oh, quite a few of the adults. So I was like, you know, okay, shall we go and get the kids? Maybe ask them. <laughs> so in 2009, there's this Pixar movie Up. And it's actually based on a real life story. I didn't know that until, until, until recently. So for those who haven't seen the movie Up, Basically, the real-life story, and then you can go and see what the movie is out. It's about if you're interested in that. Uh, but but it, it's kind of based on, the, on this real-life story. The real-life story is that um, in uh, Los Angeles, there was a, a person called Larry Walters, a 33-year-old man. And uh, he was you know, being bored at home, sitting around, and wondering, it's like, in, I wonder how my neighborhood looks from above. And he was sitting there and sitting there and thinking about this. And then he decided, I want a new perspective on my neighborhood where I live. So he actually went down to, the, to, the, to a local second-hand surplus store. And he bought 45 used weather balloons. And he bought some helium canisters. And he filled up these, uh, these weather balloons. And he tied them to his, his uh, lounge chair that he was sitting outside on the lawn. And he tied them to his chair. He got some friends along. Um, he took a six-pack of beer and a, and a, and a pea, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he took a BB gun. A BB gun is like a little pellet gun with a small little round pellets. It's not very dangerous. but um, And uh, it actually shoots plastic pellets, generally. Um, so he got this little BB gun and his uh, supplies. And he got in his chair. And he thought, OK, I'll go up with all these balloons. And I'll look over my neighborhood and see what my neighbors are doing. and and. And, and get a new perspective on my neighborhood. And then when I want to come down, I'll just use my BB gun and I'll shoot the weather balloons one at a time until I come down again. Now, Larry Walters apparently was not a scientist or an engineer. <laughs> he basically just wanted to get about 100 feet up, you know, just a decent height to, to get a bit of a view. <laughs> but but he, he had way too many balloons for his weight. And, and he ended up going up and up and up to 11,000 feet. <laughs> Which is basically in now, now a jet airliner when it cruises between countries cruises at about 30,000 feet, but when it starts its descent to come in landing or take off, 
that's about 11,000 feet that they, that they approached the runway with. And he basically went up right into the air traffic control area for Los Angeles airport. And uh, some pilots spotted him. And, and everybody panicked, and they, they, they basically had to close down the whole airport, all, cease all air traffic, clear the area, <laughs> until they figured out, what do we do with this guy? <laughs> they couldn't approach him with a helicopter or something because of the, the, the strength of the, the wind created by, by the rotors. And basically, he just stayed up there for two hours until eventually... Um, uh, until eventually, you know, these balloons, they, they do leak some, some helium. And until eventually, uh, and also the sun's cut off the heat, it started cooling down and so on and so on. Eventually, it started slowly drifting down until two hours later, after being two hours up there, he landed again. And of course, the police followed him and he was immediately arrested. <laughs> and uh, by this time, after two hours, with airports being shut down and everything, you know, all the TV cameras were there, and uh, so, uh, and a reporter walked out, pardon? And <laughs> Yeah, I guess he finished his six pack and his jelly sandwich and everything. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> and uh, so, so immediately one of the reporters interviewed him and, and asked him and, and said, uh, basically three questions. He said, the first question asked, were you scared? Were you scared? And he said, uh, yes, I didn't think I was going so high. <laughs> and then the second question, would you do it again? And he said, no. <laughs> and then the third question, why did you do it? And his answer was, because, you know, I thought, you can't just sit here and think about the idea. You have to do something about it. <laughs> now, there's an amazing story of one man who said, you know what, I can't just sit here and think about some ideas. He decided to take action. And in the same way, we can sit here and talk about love and talk about faith, and we can think about it, and that's a good thing, and we can read our Bibles and read about faith and read about love, and that is a good thing. But this man said, you know, you can't just sit there and think about it. You've got to do something about it. And it's the same with our faith and our love. We can't just sit and think about it. We have to do something about it. Now, this guy, you know, I'm sure there's many opinions about him and what he did. Uh, nobody seemed to have copied him. But one thing that happened is it inspired someone. And it inspired someone at Pixar to look at this and say, Wow, that's an amazing story. I can make a movie about that. <laughs> and at the beginning, I asked, like, yeah, maybe, is there someone you look up to, someone you admire? It's like, in, I know I will never play tennis like Rafael Nadal. Um, in fact, I'm not even good enough to join a local club. I'll happily stay at the resorts, you know, just playing social tennis. But you, do, you look at that, it's like, at least it inspires me to pick up a tennis racket and say, maybe I'll try this a bit. When we look at the things people do that expresses their faith and their love, of course, the ultimate example of that was Jesus. And Jesus lived his love. We see it in practice in his three years of ministry. We see it in the way he had compassion and empathy and how he healed people, how he got involved in their lives, how he raised people from the dead, how he cared about the outcasts in society, about the Samaritan woman, about the, the adulterous woman, who, the woman who was caught in adultery. And we can carry on with one example after the other where Jesus was not just a teacher who walked around teaching ideas, and he did that, but he followed it through with action. And we can look at Jesus and think like, 
wow, that's too much. I can't do that. But we can do something. Something to take that step and say, I'm inspired by that. What can I do in response to that? And it doesn't even have to be exactly the same thing. But when we look at the lives of people who express their love and faith, we can be inspired by that. Which does bring me to another aspect of living the love that we proclaim. And uh, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to do a bit of a group exercise here. And turn to the letters to the churches in Revelation. So uh, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2. So Revelation, last book of the Bible, right at the end. And while you turn to Revelations chapter 2, or Revelation, not Revelations, uh, just a brief background. At the beginning of this revelation, this letter, this book of Revelation, it starts off with this very same John who wrote the letter that we read uh, our theme passage is from. This same John gets a vision uh, from God. But the start of this vision is basically a message to seven churches, seven real churches like us, a group of Christians together like us in a town. Um, so it'd be something like, you know, and he starts it off, each one of these letters or messages with, he says, to the angel of the church in Watford, write the following, and then comes some message for, them, for, that, for that church. Um, so I'm going to ask various people to just read some verses and then pay attention to see if we can spot a pattern. Okay, so who can read for me? The first letter is to the church in Ephesus. Who can read for me? Revelation 2, verse 2 and 5. Just put up your hand and... Anybody? Yeah, Leon, please speak up loudly so everybody can hear. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, but you have tested those who claim to be possible, but are not, and have found them false. You agree for each No, just 2 and 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you could have thought. Okay, thank you. Just up to there. All right, so that was to the church in Ephesus. Then to the church in Thyatira. Uh, still in chapter 2. Who wants to read for me verse 19? Penny, thank you. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Thank you. And then the next letter is in chapter 3. We're going to skip uh, one or two of the, the churches. He writes to the church in Sardis. Uh, who wants to read for me chapter 3, verse 2? Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Thank you. And then the next letter is to, fill it, to the church in Philadelphia, verse 8 of chapter 3. Who wants to read verse 8? Diesel? Um, I know your deeds. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Thank you. And then lastly, the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 verse 15 wants to read that. Thank you, Simone. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. And verse 16 as well, thank you. So because of your lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out out of my mouth. Thank you. So what is the common theme that emerges here? Correction. 
<laughs> Pardon? Correction. Correction. Correction about what? What is the common theme? What do we see recurring in all these passages? It's all about deeds. It's all about deeds. What they have done or what they are doing. It's uh, in Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. Thyatira, verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. Sardis, uh, verse 2, I have found your deeds unfinished. Philadelphia, 3, verse 8, I know your deeds. Laodicea, verse 15, I know your deeds. And this is Jesus telling the churches, I'm watching you. And what is he watching? Their deeds. What are they up to? What are you busy with? Who is the you in the your here? He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Every time. Who's the you? Us. The church. Yes, it's plural. It's not singular. Now, everything we kind of looked at and talked about now was kind of personal. It's like, okay, how do I live my faith? How do I express my love? Now Jesus talks here to a whole church. It's a very different aspect here of a different type of responsibility and accountability. And what Jesus says here, it's not only about individual deeds, but individual deeds in a collective group of people usually leads to a, a, a kind of a culture in that group of people. Because people look at each other and it's like, hmm, I think I like what he's doing. I'm going to do that too. And sometimes we start organizing things and we do things together. Like next Sunday, we're having a harvest service, yes, but we're also, oh, let's all collect some food for some needy people. Not, oh, uh, Leon is collecting some food for some needy people. No, we, we all collect together. Our deeds don't just matter individually, but as a congregation and as a fellowship as well. And I always find it fascinating, challenging, interesting uh, that Jesus looks at a church as a whole and corrects and judges and uh, counsels a church as a whole without singling out individuals. He says, you group of people, I know your deeds. Now, we probably all know that within a group of people, there's, my wife's a statistician, I'll ask her to explain it afterwards what a normal distribution is. But basically a normal distribution means there's a bulk of people in the middle that kind of more or less all the same. And then you've got towards the end, you've got a very few that's different and one end and towards the other end, a very few that's different. And you find that in all kinds of things. You find it in the length of people. Most people are kind of between small, medium, and large. And then you've got a small number of people that's extra, extra large and extra, extra small. And so on and so on. Um, same in churches. You, the church kind of generally behaves in a certain way and there may be a few that excel in their deeds and there's maybe a few that don't do anything. The point here is, in general, the church is known for a certain culture and behavior. And it's worth for us when we think about, okay, how do we as individuals express our love and our faith in practical deeds? What are we as a church known for? What would Jesus write to us and think about when he says, what's the church? Or to the angel, to the angel of the church in Watford writes, right, I know your deeds. Now, some of those deeds were good 
that he commends them for it. He said, you know what? I know your deeds. It's amazing how you persevere and how you, your deeds of service. And some of them, like Laodicea, he says, I know your deeds. In fact, they pretty much, I don't know. I wouldn't quite call it cold, but then they're not heat, they're not hot either. In fact, if I look at your deeds, um, it's a bit lukewarm. Jesus judges a whole church on their deeds. So it does matter. What would we like to be known for if Jesus would write a letter to us as a church? And he says, what the church? I know your deeds. How would we be known for expressing our love and our faith? And how do we respond to a correction? This is where it gets challenging. Because when it's a collective judgment, if you're kind of on that extra, extra large of the end, where, man, you're setting the pace and the example in doing and in actions and service and in loving people, and you know, you're out there on the streets and you're taking care of the poor and the needy and you're standing up for the rights of the oppressed, and it's very easy to judge the rest of the family because they're not quite up to your standards. Or the family, it's very easy to judge the, the extra small at the end. It's like, yeah, come on, man, we're all doing this. Why aren't you participating? You know, That's not the point. It's not about the individual. It's about what's the culture in our church. We could judge each other, or we could inspire each other and carry each other along. And we could ask ourselves, which one will express better for us to love one another? But as a church, as a community, it is also important that we don't just live and express our love that we proclaim as individuals, but that we also inspire each other and carry each other along with that. I absolutely really appreciate things that Leon organizes, like you know, doing the food collection at Tesco, doing the food collection next Sunday. Um, there's another Hope event, I think, coming, a walk in London. And, and through the year, there's various events organized. Um, whether it's an invitational service, whether it's a collection for, to help someone in need in the church or outside the church. I really appreciate those who organize things like that because it really helps me, and I believe it helps us as a community to live and express the love that we proclaim. And it will be good for us if we see an initiative like that to support it and to say thank you for arranging that and thank you for, thank you for helping me to express my love and my faith in that way. But it's important for us as a church also, not only as individuals, and not only to think about our own life, but to think us, about us as a community to express through actions and through deeds the love that we proclaim. We're uh, going to have communion now. And when I think about this whole principle of a practical love, a love that expresses itself through deeds and actions. God himself has done that as an example. In Romans uh, 5, verse 8, Paul writes, he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God himself did not just love in words and in speech, although he did that, you know, you can, you can open your Bible. God says very clearly, I love you. So many times in words, but he demonstrated his love. What is demonstrated means he, he put it into action. This deeds associated. And his demonstration, his action 
to illustrate his love, to, to live the love that he proclaimed, was to send his son Christ. And Christ himself lived out his love by dying for us on the cross. When we have the bread, uh, to think about the broken body of Christ, and when we have the fruit of the vine, to remind us of, of his blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins, let's reflect on that, that um, love is not just words. And if we love and we proclaim love, let us live it motivated by that practical love that God and Jesus has shown us in our lives. Is, um, Lisa, are you doing a prayer for the... Okay, Lisa's going to come up and pray for us for the communion. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, um, <coughs> we actually lost for words, God, just by the fact that you, Father, you loved, you loved us so much, Father, you loved the world so much that you gave up your Son, Father, and for the forgiveness of sins, Father, and that we can live eternally, Father. Father, thank you so much for the ultimate <coughs> sacrifice, Father, that uh, was so much more than words, Father, your action spoke louder than words, Father, but thank you so much, Father, that you express in so many ways, Father, that you love us individually, collectively, Father, you love your creation, you love each aspect of it. Thank you for your son, Father, for his uh, perfect example, Father, and I pray, Father, that we can um, imitate that, Father, by our actions, Father, but also by our words and our speech. Father, we thank you for remembering, Father, today and each day, Father, what you and your son has accomplished, Father, on the cross. Father, I pray that we fix our eyes on the cross, Father, and live wholeheartedly at life's good for you. And I pray this in your son. Amen. Amen.